Father, we thank you so much that uh, Jesus is king and we are his people. We are in his kingdom. And we uh, pray now that as we look at this extraordinary story in your word, that you would be speaking to us by your spirit, showing us what it means to have King Jesus, the king that we need and to trust in him in the face of our enemies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, sorry, I have to set up the, um, the text here, and it's not quite the right size for me to see what it is. Here we go. Right, well, I guess um, this David and Goliath is a uh, familiar story to many of us. Um, but what, what do we actually think that this is about, this uh, account in 1 Samuel 17? Is it a story about uh, an underdog, um, the equivalent of the, you know, the plucky Brit going up against the mighty giant in a Wimbledon semi-final, maybe? Um, do you remember when that was... Andy Murray, I guess it isn't really Andy Murray now, is it? But um, or, 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 or before that, uh, Tim Henman, you know, the ultimate gentleman underdog. Um, but is, is that the kind of story that this is? Or is it perhaps, is it, as some people say, is it more about David's faith in the face of giant enemies? You know, he could have been overwhelmed. But no, he took up the, the little stones of faith and courage and boldness and he launched them against his enemy and he was victorious. Is that what it's about? Well, what did we see last time if we were here when we were back in the building last week in chapter 16? We learned that we need to see things from God's perspective and not man's. And surprise, surprise, this story, first of all, isn't about David is actually about God. It's teaching us something about the shape of God's salvation from his greatest enemies. So there are two, two things to see in this chapter, chapter 17, two things to see. The first thing is this terrifying enemy, terrifying enemy. Here is this Philistine warrior that we meet in verse four, and he is absolutely terrifying at least on an outward view. So verse four, what do we see? He's over nine feet tall. Now, as I think I might have mentioned before, I get a little bit bored of people asking me how tall I am because it pretty much happens every day of my life, wherever I go. How, goodness me, how tall are you? Just, just, just how tall are you? And, you know, this, this question follows me around. And sometimes just because I get bored of saying the right answer, I tell people I'm nine foot seven, which would be even taller than Goliath. He was nine foot. Do you know the tallest person of the modern era, or at least recorded as, as far as we know, uh, was Robert Wadlow, who was just under nine foot tall. So this is that kind of magnitude. Um, here is terrifying Goliath and uh, height as we have seen um, in, in 1 Samuel already, is something that, that people have, uh, were impressed by. And this is meant to be absolutely terrifying and scary. There he is standing there. He's, he's got a huge, loud voice. 
He's shouting intimidating threats. And he's basically saying, bring it on. Whatever you've got to throw at me, bring it on. Winner takes all. And so what is he doing as he does this, as he makes all these um, scary threats? Well, he's defying the God of Israel. The word defy um, pops up six times in this chapter. Um, speaking of Goliath's attitude to God. So it's there in verse 10. Can you see that? And then if you follow through verse 23, verse 25, verse 26, verse 36, verse 45, defy. And there's, just notice something interesting from that. Um, defying God's people is the same as defying God himself. Do you remember what the risen Jesus says to another Saul on the road to Damascus? In, in Acts, uh, Saul's been the chief persecutor of Christians, and Jesus says, why do you persecute me, doesn't he? That's what he says. God and his people are intimately bound together. It's a covenant relationship, you know, like marriage, you know, if you insult my wife, you insult me. So, you know, please don't. But God has committed himself to this people. He's made these promises to Abraham to, and, and so he's committed to them to such an extent that to do things to his people is to insult him. And actually, defying God is the definition of sin, isn't it? We know we, we as we know, we, we tend to think of sin as breaking a list of rules, but actually sin is defying God himself. It's saying, I'm the boss, I'm in charge, I make the rules. And then because of that attitude, we turn our backs on his laws. So can you see what Goliath stands for in this chapter? He stands for sin, he stands for sinners. He is defying God and he's outwardly terrifying. What are the things that terrify us? What would you say terrifies you? Uh, what keeps you awake at night? What drives you to do anything except what you ought to do, which is to trust in Jesus? I guess um, fearing God doesn't mean that our other fears magically evaporate, but choosing to fear God is the beginning of a journey of trusting him, putting our lives in his hands, seeing our fears in the context of his love and care and concern for us. Maybe it's the virus, maybe it's the consequences of the virus, maybe it's the consequences that that is going to have on our livelihoods and our, our lives. And those things, and we know this if we look at the world around us, we look at the way these things are, are gripping the world around us, you know, these, these fears can assume Goliath proportions, can't they? Certainly in our minds, if not in reality. But actually, as we've seen, it's not just about those fears out there. Goliath represents sin itself, defying God. He represents sin in our lives. He, he, so think of the things that we do and we think and we say that we know are against God. And actually, some of, sometimes those things as well can take the form of a seemingly unbeatable terrifying warrior can't they so that that the addiction to a pattern of behavior or, or way of thinking i just can't seem to snap out of it i know it's wrong i know that i shouldn't be thinking or feeling or, or you know behaving like this but i just 
carry on despite that. You know, how many of us have, have started, you know, countless new years determined that, you know, actually this time, this time it will be different. This time will be the, the year or the season when I deal with this besetting sin or problem, or whatever it is. And, you know, after a few weeks, we end up back where we started um, again. And that kind of battle in the Christian life can be crippling. And we start to think, well, nothing works. What's the point even in trying to deal with it? So here is this terrifying enemy then, first of all, Goliath. He's this terrifying enemy. He's like our fears. He's like our sin. Okay, so that's the first thing. But then secondly, we see in this chapter, we see a surprising victory. So Jesse sends David to the front line with some uh, with some grain and some bread and 10 cheeses. Don't quite know how he's supposed to carry 10 cheeses, but off he goes. Maybe some people were helping him. Go and see how they are at the front. Your, your older brother, your, your fierce warrior brothers, they're doing their best. Um, get to the front and help them. And he, he goes and he hears Goliath's shout of defiance. So verse um, 26, he, he, he's interested. He says, oh, you know, tell me what's going to be done about this. And a lie appears of his inquiries and he immediately jumps to conclusions. And here we have somebody else just looking with their eyes. Do you remember we thought about this last time? Man looks with his eyes. God looks with his heart. Or God, you know, they see with their eyes. God sees with his heart. Here's, here's, here's a lie looking again with his eyes. So verse 28. Uh, you know, why have you come down here? Who did you leave those sheep with? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You come down only to watch the battle. And actually, verse 28, it's a great warning to, to us not to jump to conclusions about people, isn't it? Think how easily we get into arguments with one another because we think we can judge somebody else's heart from their actions. You know, you're, you're just saying that because of this. You, you, you obviously don't love me because you've done this. But sometimes it's wise, isn't it? Take a step back. Don't presume we know why people are doing something because the response you get when you jump to conclusions is like this in verse 29, isn't it? You know, now what have I done, says David? Can't I even speak? It's a very human moment. But Eliab is looking with his eyes. And what he sees with his eyes is, well, look, here's terrifying Goliath. And David just looks like he's being a bit selfish and self-centered and out to profit at the expense of everyone else and of the sheep that he's supposed to be looking after. And, and Saul then jumps to the same conclusion. Verse 33, you're only a boy. And then we find out what's really going on with David. And the striking thing in his explanation of everything is that he appeals to what? Who does he appeal to? He appeals to the Lord. First, he says he's proved himself with lions and bears. So, if he, you know, he's done all right with those. So, he's, he, you know, he's, he can give a Goliath a good shot. But he points out, even in saying that, that actually it's the Lord who has helped him on those occasions. You know, killing a lion or a bear with your bare hands is, is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? But God saved him, he says. It wasn't me. It was God. So Saul says, all right, okay, we'll, we'll give you a go. But 
David refuses the armour. Why does he do that, do you think? Well, it, the point is, it's going to be really obvious that it's not David who's managed to do this. It's not David with his clever ingenuity and his you know, expert slingshot who's managed to overcome this, uh, this warrior when it happens, but it's God. And so Goliath and David meet and Goliath scoffs at him. And then David says, verse 45, he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. Today, I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And then David strikes the killer blow, and Goliath falls, <clears throat> and the Philistines flee, and everyone lives happily ever after. Well, not quite. But those verses are important, aren't they? Because they show what David thinks is going on here. You see, this isn't about plucky David who looks unlikely but happens to be a great shot with the sling. It's not about David, it's about God. It's about the God who saves through a weak and feeble and unimpressive saviour. And uh, having uh, killed him, he cuts off his head and uh, off he goes with his, uh, his head. And, and we get this slightly strange verse, if you look. Um, oh, are we still here? You've disappeared. Yeah, no, we're still, still hear me? Yes. Yeah, fantastic. Sorry about that. Um, a bit, bit, always a bit alarming when everyone disappears. Um, but have a look at verse 54. Um, we uh, get this slightly strange verse that David takes the Philistine head and brings it to Jerusalem. And then he puts the Philistine weapons in his own head. Now, actually, what, 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 if you follow through what happens in this story, what that means is that David must have kept Goliath's head with him for a number of years because he doesn't get to Jerusalem, as far as we know, till 2 Samuel chapter 6, when he's a fully grown adult after his you know, had these sort of years of conflict with Saul and uh, Saul has died. And um, uh, the, the, there, was, there was a place outside Jerusalem called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now, how, how did it get its name? We don't quite know, but David took the skull of Goliath of Gath, that was his name, and, and where was he from, Goliath of Gath. Well, did he then bury, bury this skull at Gol Gath? Ah, possibly. Well, if he did, it was a fitting place to do so. We can't actually be sure, and people, you know, argue about the precise reason that it's called Golgatha, but it, it's not a ridiculous idea, is it, to think of this skull being buried in Jerusalem? We, we know it was buried there. And of course, Golgatha is another name for Calvary, the place where about a thousand years later, God would win 
the ultimate victory over his enemies. And once again, how, what's he doing when that happens, when Jesus dies on the cross? Well, again, it is a show of weakness over strength. A man hanging hopelessly, weakly, dying on a Roman cross. Do you see this? This is how God works. Weakness overcomes strength, even in the defeat of his enemies. And it's worth comparing and contrasting this story of the defeat of the one who defied God with these, you know, these horrible terrorist events, for example, that we keep hearing about across Europe. And, you know, even last week we heard, you know, just um, uh, the, 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 the terrorist threat in London had been raised again to the highest level. Because what, what are these terrorists doing when they, well, particularly the sort of Islamist terrorists, what, they, they, they're responding to what they perceive as defiance of their God, aren't they? Defiance, you might note, that, that it is never violent and that generally doesn't shed blood, unlike the Philistines in the ancient world. But these terrorists perceive that things like, you know, whether it's the you know, cartoons being published or whatever it might be, they say, you know, you can't speak about our God in that way. You can't write about our God in that way. And, and the response is extreme violence. It's a kind of Goliath defeating David, if you like. But actually at the heart of the Christian faith is the notion that God's weakness is stronger than man's strength. We, we don't need to step in and protect God's honour and act on his behalf. Because do you know what? God has already stepped in and he's already acted to defeat his enemies through Jesus's death on the cross. And that means for us today, whatever enemies we face now, whatever attack we find ourselves under, whatever form that attack may take. The final question isn't whether we have what it takes to, to stand firm or whether we have enough faith in the struggles that we face. The final question is whether, like Israel that day, we're prepared to simply put our trust in God's appointed saviour. The classic Sunday school interpretation of this story, which says God, you know, David overcame Goliath by his faith, then it is just missing the point, isn't it? Because it, 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 it's, it's saying it's saying it's about David's faith puts all the emphasis on David rather than putting it on God. The question then becomes, have you got enough faith? Have you got the kind of faith that is big enough to bring down the mighty Goliaths in your life? Whereas actually the question is, have you got the kind of God who is big enough, even, in the, even through weakness, to bring down Goliath? You know, how many times has someone said to you, I wish I had your faith? It's a crazy thing to say, isn't it? Because, you know, if I, if I recommend my doctor to you, you don't need my faith in her. You need her. You need my doctor. So it's not my faith you want. It's my God. This is all about a great God and a weak saviour. Goliath looks outwardly terrifying. David looks outwardly weak and feeble. And even with questionable motives, he looks. But God sees things differently. He sees someone who will trust him and who will be a suitable king. So don't read this thinking we need to be like David. 
read this thinking we need to be like the Israelites who desperately need a savior we need someone to do this for us you see so often our approach in in our lives as Christians is a kind of provisions and cheeses approach to the battle you know Jesse that's his approach to, to the thing he sends David off you know oh think of the think of the soldiers in the front line we better just give them a little bit more so they can keep going another day send them some some provisions send them some cheeses sustain them for a little bit further and 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 so often we think that about ourselves don't we we think the reason that I'm failing in my battle with sin or the reason that I'm unable to conquer my fear is that I'm just not trying hard enough. I need a bit more spiritual cheese. I need a bit more spiritual strength to keep going another day, to see off the enemy myself. But Israel didn't need more cheese, didn't need more provisions. Israel needed a saviour. So as we face our fears and our sin, and as we long for security and stability, as we've been thinking about over these weeks, and, you know, as we're more aware than ever as we head into another lockdown what we need isn't to try a bit harder to make our problems go away what we need is a savior who can do what we cannot possibly do for ourselves and the wonderful thing is that, that this savior this king that we so desperately need is the king who's been given to us in jesus and of course, the question people often ask then as we struggle with this and we try and work out what it means in, in our lives and practices. Well, look, if Jesus has won the victory over sin and death, well, OK, why then do I still sin? Why then do I still fear things more than I fear God? Because you're asking me to trust in Jesus and, and I, I do trust in Jesus. So, so I still struggle with these things, though. Why is that? What's the problem? Well, the, the answer is that right here and now. We live in the overlap between two ages. Victory has been won, but there is still some mopping up left to do. You know, we've been thinking about Remembrance Sunday today. It's a bit like the time between D-Day and V-E-Day, as we often say. There's only one possible outcome. Once D-Day had happened on the 6th of June, 1944, uh, that was the decisive moment that meant that although the battle still continued after that date, VE Day was coming. There is only one possible outcome now. So press on, don't lose heart. Or maybe if you know military metaphors don't quite do it for you, maybe it's helpful to think of it as a bit like an old factory that's been spewing out faulty washing machines for years and years. And the building is falling down. The workers are lazy and they don't do their jobs properly. And the biggest problem of all is the, bo the boss isn't managing things properly. He just sits around watching TV all day. But then one day the factory comes under new management and the factory isn't instantly transformed. It's the same old building. It's the same old workers producing the same old faulty washing machines. But there's a new manager in the office and everything begins to slowly change and the manager starts to discipline the workers when they don't turn off and he introduces bonuses for good work and he sets to, re to work repairing the worn out building and that isn't easy he's got the plans on his desk in his office but it doesn't all happen overnight it takes hard work and pain as he gradually brings his workers into line with his plan 
you see Christians are under new management we have a new king we have the king that we need and so as we face our sin as we face our fears as we face lockdown we need to look to him victory over our greatest fears and our most besetting sins won't come from some technique that we've not yet discovered or some special hidden prayer that we just need to kind of do properly do better uh, you know access this sort of secret to, to spiritual success no it's just in Jesus he's who we need we just need to look to him maybe the the the, the, the victory over these things will come and, and we will experience it in our lifetimes maybe it will come in the life to come Meanwhile, what he wants us to do is to stick with our surprising saviour, our weak saviour, not to look to human solutions that will only let us down, not to attempt to settle for a king that we want who does things our way and solves all our problems in, in a way that we want them to be solved right here, right now, but to rely instead on the king that we need who's God's free gift to us in Jesus. It would be great to talk further about what that looks like in our lives, and we will do that in the Q&A afterwards. So to please do get the questions fired up. It will be a little bit easier in this context to have some more discussion than we can manage in the big building when we're together in that way. So let, let's make the most of that in a few minutes after the service or after the formal bit is finished. But for now, let me pray, and then I'll hand back to David. Father, thank you that uh, we have a saviour that we need in the face of our sin and in the face of our fears and in the face of all that stands opposed to us between us and you. Thank you that Jesus has died in weakness, a saviour who has died to bring the victory that we need. And so today we trust in him afresh and rejoice in what he has done and pray that we'd see what it means to live trusting and resting in him day by day in our lives now. Amen.